0: Practicing meditation itself creates compassion, creates love, builds love, builds kindness. Why? Because when you meditate, there is a relationship with your thoughts,
1: and that is the key point. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakhiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Welcome everyone to the Mind Valley podcast. Today's guest is Gelong Dugton, the famous British monk. Who has been on Mine Valley several times. And here's what is remarkable about Geylong Thugten. He was the monk brought in to train the staff and actors of Marvel's Doctor Strange. Yes, he trained Benedict Cumberbatch on Eastern philosophy so that Cumberbatch could give his best possible portrayal of Doctor Strange in that hit Marvel movie. Now, Thugten, which is his name, Geylong is a title of reverence. Tugten was a British actor who decided to give up the modern life, move to a remote Scottish island, join a Buddhist monastery, and meditate in silence for four years. He came back to the modern world and today is one of the most prominent meditation teachers on the planet. Thugtin is also a dear friend, and he was a guest at Valley University, where he spoke on stage and delivered a remarkable talk on the secret formula for human happiness. So what you're going to hear in this podcast is the audio version of Dumtun's talk at Valley University, Pula, Croatia, 2019. This is what we're going to be covering. Firstly, he's going to talk about how to understand the ebbs and flows of life based on his own personal experience. And he's going to unveil what he calls the formula for human happiness. He breaks it down into something incredibly relatable and easily applicable. You are not going to be listening to a complex philosophical argument on any type of Buddhist or religious practice. Tugtin given his beautiful sense of humor, is also going to tear apart a few cultural myths about meditation. For example, the myth where people think that they are supposed to clear their mind and make it completely blank. And you're not hearing this from me, you're hearing this from a genuine Buddhist monk. Now, a core concept from Thupten's meditative practice is what he calls meditate on compassion. In this talk, you'll understand how to overcome some of the more boring or difficult aspects of meditation to bring in practices that actually make meditation more joyful, easier, fun, and beneficial. And as we end this talk, you're going to get an actual meditation exercise. Now, this podcast is divided into two bits. Listen to the first half while you're driving. That's perfectly fine. But when we come to the actual meditation, make sure you pull over or make sure you're listening in the comfort of your own home because you are going to be sitting down with your eyes closed. Not the best position to be operating a steering wheel. So please make a note of that. Now, for those of you who want to have Thupten's meditation with you on the go, it will be available on Mind Valley's meditation app, Ombana. Just go to the Apple App Store and search for OMVANA. And Ombana will carry. A Geelong Thubten collection. Ombana will be available on Android in a couple of months, but right now it's available on Apple iPhone. So let's get started with this special podcast with Geelong you. Lakiani and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.
0: I'm really happy to be back again, speaking at Mind Valley. I always love to come to Mind Valley events. I've been, over the last few years to several of your events, and I'm getting more and more involved in your family and doing more work with you guys. And yesterday as I was flying into the airport, I felt such happiness. I thought, Oh, I'm going to be with Mind Valley again. It always makes me happy. So thank you for coming this morning to my talk. My talk is about happiness. I'm going to talk about happiness and I'm going to talk about obviously meditation or mindfulness and compassion, a few different subjects. It was actually really deep unhappiness that sent me to a Buddhist monastery. I'm not here to try and convert you all into monks. Don't worry. (laughs) You can keep your hair. (laughs) But just to tell you a little bit of my own story, I was incredibly unhappy in my early twenties. I was living in New York. I was living actually a very wild lifestyle. I was going to parties all the time. I was an actor and I was just burning the candle at both ends and extremely unwell in my body and also in my emotions, very stressed. I was having panic attacks. Those panic attacks were so frightening that I remember one panic attack. I was standing in a shop and I had to sit down on the floor because I just had this feeling that the things in the shop were going to attack me. You know, panic disorder is very irrational but very frightening. I mean, you know that the clothes or the books are not going to jump off the shelves and eat you, but you think they are. So it's a very frightening experience. And I was experiencing a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and it reached fever pitch. I had a kind of meltdown, basically a major crash, a burnout, where I had physical symptoms very similar to a heart attack, and I was just mentally filled with fear, anxiety, terror. And so I was sick for about three or four months in the state. I was bedridden. I couldn't move. And during that time, my mother looked after me, and she's a Buddhist. And she wasn't sort of pushing it on me, but she kind of casually left a few meditation books around my bed. (laughs) And I started to read them. And I started to think, yeah, it's all about how you think and how you feel. And that's something you can change. I started to get really excited about this idea of mental transformation. And this idea that you don't have to be stuck the way you are or the way you think you are. You can change. And you know how everything just comes together at the right time. So what happened at that time was an old childhood friend was also there. And she said to me, there's a Buddhist monastery in Scotland where she was going to go for one year. You can enroll for one year to be a monk or a nun in her case. And I thought, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. It didn't seem like a huge commitment because it was just one year. And so I went and four days later I became a monk, but only for a year. So now 26 years later, I'm still a monk (laughs) because what happened after that year was I decided to continue. So I decided to not be a novice monk anymore. I became a fully fledged monk. That's why my name is Tupten, but we say Gelong Tupten. Gelong means like full monk. It means lifelong monk. So it's like a title or something. And my name is Tupten. So I became a monk and have been a monk now for twenty six years. And as you heard in the introduction, I do a lot of teaching And most of the teaching I do is in completely non-Buddhist situations. I'm not interested in going around trying to preach a religious message. I mean, it's a very debatable subject whether Buddhism is actually a religion anyway. It's more like a philosophy, and it has all of these really great techniques that people in the modern era are really interested in. So the whole mindfulness movement, of course, has its roots in Buddhism, but doesn't necessarily even mention the word Buddhism. You don't have to. It's just about training the mind. And I do a lot of that kind of teaching internationally, working with companies, but also working in schools and universities. My latest project, which I'm really passionate about, is I teach 12-week-long mindfulness programs to medical students as part of their training. So it's now been accredited as a course within their training. So they learn vaccination, they learn surgery, they learn meditation. It's pretty cool. And so I'm doing a lot of that. I'm working in prisons. I'm working in drug rehab centers. Lots of very diverse situations. But I want to start this subject today by telling you a very specific thing about my story and how it relates to today's subject matter, which is that I started to teach mindfulness kind of three or four years into being a monk. And I started running around the world doing a lot of teaching. But after doing that for about 12 years, I really started to feel incredibly drained. I felt like I was giving, 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 but had no way of refueling my own resources. I was just feeling more and more tired. And I also felt that the teaching was very intellectual. It wasn't really coming from the heart. It was just you know stuff I'd read and had heard, and I was passing it on. And it felt a little bit fake. It didn't feel like it was coming from a really deep place. So I discussed with my teachers, and between us, we came up with the decision that I should go into a very long meditation retreat to really deepen my training. A retreat is where you go into a place and you have no contact with the outside world. You're really enclosed in a building, basically, for that period of time, meditating all day with zero contact with the outside. So it was a four-year-long retreat, which is a little bit long, isn't it? But hey, I'm an extreme guy. (laughs) So I went into this retreat on a remote Scottish island in 2005 with 20 other monks. So, of course, we could talk to each other a little bit, although in the second year, we had to take a vow of silence for five months. So during those four years, you are really thrown into a corner with your own mind. Tell you a little funny aside to this story. Before I did the four-year retreat, I was teaching a lot in prisons. And I went to a prison like a month before my retreat and I said, you know what, you guys, I'm actually choosing this. (laughs) And they were shocked. I said, you know, I'm actually choosing to go into a kind of prison for four years and maybe you could see your prison time in that way as a meditation retreat At first, they just laughed in my face, and then after speaking to them for like an hour, they really thought, yeah, this is a journey, you can do that. Anyway, that's the funniest side. So I did my four-year retreat, and it was very hard, really, really hard, because you're faced with your own mind. And that anxiety, that panic, that unhappiness, that depression that I had had before joining the monastery, I don't think I'd really dealt with it. I think I kind of suppressed it and just became like this traveling monk and giving lots of talks and, you know, doing all that. But I think I hadn't really dealt with it. So it came up much stronger in the retreat. And I'm so grateful for that because that's when I really could get to grips with it and start to work with it. And so my retreat was an amazing period of transformation around actually going into that darkness within myself. You know, a lot of people think meditation should feel great. Not always. Sometimes you have to go into the parts of yourself that you don't like, and you have to resolve them, and that's kind of painful. But it was really, really helpful, because I learned how to go into that sadness, darkness, panic, all of that, and learned how to give that part of myself some love and compassion and acceptance. And it did start to change. And bizarrely, it changed into a kind of feeling of happiness. I think the more you accept and love and give kindness to the parts of yourself that you normally reject, the more they start to change into a feeling of wealth, spiritual wealth within yourself, the transformation from misery to happiness. I'm not saying I've achieved it and I'm all sorted yet. I'm still on the journey, but definitely I learned something in that retreat. But the reason I'm telling this story is more to talk about what happened when I came out of the retreat. Because I came out of that retreat in 2009 and I went to London. Normally when you do a four year retreat, you're supposed to have quite a long period of like coming down. You're supposed to kind of go into the monastery and stay there for a month and then like a halfway house to kind of ease your way back into normal society. But I was actually teaching in Amsterdam the day after the retreat ended and then London. Just because of my role in the monastery, I was thrown like a bullet out of a gun straight back into the world. And that was very good for me, in a way, because it taught me a lot. So I ended up in London, and the first thing I saw was that everybody was walking around with their faces buried in phones. And really interestingly, that period of time, 2005 to 2009, was a very interesting period in the history of tech, in that during that time, the smartphone revolution happened. The iPhone was launched during that period. Before my retreat, nobody would heard of iPhones, or very few. Now everybody had them. Also, these social media networks were launched. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. They all happened during my retreat. And so, when I came out of the retreat, I was really faced with all of this in quite a shocking way. You know, when you're in it, you don't see it happening. But you take yourself out, and then you come back in, and you see the difference. And so what I really noticed was a few things. I noticed how everything had sped up. Everything was like faster and more instant, which has its pluses and minuses, of course. I mean, I'm not anti-technology. I'm not some kind of you know, miserable monk sitting here saying you've all got to live in caves in the mountains. I'm not anti-technology at all. I think it's great. But I'm interested in looking at how we use it or how it uses us and how we can get the balance right. Because I definitely noticed an increase in speed. Everything's faster and so more distracted. The other thing I noticed was the way we process information has totally changed. That landscape has completely transformed in that we are now invaded by information. The news has a kind of invasive quality to it. You know, in the old days, if you wanted to find out what's going on, you have a choice to go and buy a newspaper or to switch on the six o'clock news. And sure, it's good to be informed about what's happening in the world, but you have a choice. You decide. It's on your terms. Whereas we all know how it is now. It's notifications just popping up on our screen And, you know, you're looking through social media and all you want to do is look at pictures of your friends with their cats, but you have to also navigate through all the news stories to get there. One cat that before the next cat, you have a news story inserted. So we know how invasive it can be and what that does to our anxiety levels. I think because of the repetitive and invasive quality of the news, it's made us more jumpy and anxious. We always think there's something terrible happening because we're constantly reading about it on a loop again and again. We watch the same news feed, the same news video again and again. So it seems like one thing happened a thousand times. And so generally, I think as a culture, we're walking around with a little bit more pressure than we used to have, a little bit more anxiety. I don't know about in the countries where you've traveled from, but in the UK, there's a thing now where you get on a train, public transport, you get on a train, and they announce over the loudspeaker, they announce you're on the train to London, There are this stop and this stop, and you'll be there at three o'clock. If you see anything suspicious, phone this number. But like They immediately tell you that. So there's now like a culture around oh, there's something going to go wrong. There's a terrorist on the train. There's a suspicious package. There's this, there's that. And sure, that stuff is happening. I'm not saying we should ignore it. But the way we're told about it, as soon as we go to a venue, they say, hi, welcome. If there's a fire, that's where you should meet. So we're always told straight away of what could go wrong. And sure, we need a certain amount of health and safety in our lives. But I just think the way it's culturally presented now has made us into a more anxious society. So what does this have to do with happiness? Well, in a way, I think we are overburdened with stress hormones. I think we're going through our day with way too much cortisol and adrenaline in our body because of all that jumpy, excitable information that we receive and the speed of life, the pressure of life, we're constantly invaded by stuff. So we have all of this cortisol. And I think what that's done to us is made us more tired. We're more exhausted. And so then we reach for something that will make us feel energized. So now we're way too addicted to caffeine and sugar. You know, we're so tired. So we reach for an energy snack, an energy drink. We're constantly trying to make ourselves feel awake, make us get our energy back. And so we get caught up in a loop because, of course, the more of the stimulants we ingest, the more tired we become, the more we need. It's like an addiction, isn't it? But I think what it's done to our relationship with happiness is really interesting. I think culturally we've moved into a phase where our relationship with happiness is that we see it as a feeling, a sensation, a buzz, a high, a hit, because we're constantly craving those feelings of feeling better or feeling some kind of sensation that makes us feel less tired. So we search for happiness in a very kind of instant gratification type way. And it's not a bad thing, but the problem is that that search for that kind of feeling, psychologically, that creates a feeling of unhappiness. Because the more we try to feel something and we identify as, when I feel that, then that means I'm happy. The more we do that, the more we're telling ourselves we don't feel something. So we're feeling depleted, and we want some feeling that will make us better, but the more we chase that feeling, the more depleted we feel. And of course, this is the cycle that advertisers know how to play on making us feel, if you get this, you'll be happy, and then you get that, and then you're still not happy, you want something else. I mean, this is the cycle of craving. So in a way, our relationship with happiness is about sensations and feelings and a hit or a buzz, so it becomes kind of unsatisfying because we never get it. And the other interesting thing is that our relationship with happiness is always about something that's about to happen. I call it anticipatory happiness. Something is about to happen chemically, this is very true. Because one of the main chemicals in the body associated with that kind of search for happiness is, of course, dopamine. Dopamine, I mean, these are all natural chemicals in our body, cortisol, adrenaline, dopamine, they are part of us. But when they're out of balance, we get stressed and we get tired. And that search for a buzz, that search for a hit, that search for something of course, leads to another search for something, so it never really arrives, so we're always searching. And that is the dopamine in our body. Really interestingly, dopamine surges just before we get what we want, and it drops away when we get what we want. They've done experiments testing the dopamine levels in animals, and they get the surge before they're about to be fed. And then when they're fed, the dopamine drops way down. So it's like that for us too. Something about to happen is always the exciting part. You know it's way more exciting getting dressed up for a party than the actual party. (laughs) You know, New Year's Eve. Getting ready for the New Year's Eve party is kind of more fun. The party is always pretty depressing. It's the about to, the about to happen. So our happiness is always a delayed response. When I get that, then I will be happy. So this has made us more hungry, more unsatisfied... So even though in our culture, in modern, you know, Western, developed world, we're more comfortable than ever, we're, I think, more dissatisfied than ever. So something hasn't matched up. Okay, so back to my story. Just because I think some things about my story might resonate with you, you might think we're very different, I'm a monk and you're not, but actually we're all the same. And things I've been through and I'm going through, I think, will resonate for you. So when I joined the monastery, I was desperate to be happy. I was incredibly unhappy. So then what did I do? I started to meditate in quite a kind of addictive way. I started to meditate to try and get happiness. Very understandable thing. I mean, here we go. I'm looking at happiness now as a state of mind. I'm trying to give up this idea that it should come from outside. It should come from within. So then I'm going to meditate to get happiness. Same problem arises. The more I'm sitting there searching for happiness in my meditation, the more depressed I become. The more I start to feel it's not happening, I'm not there yet, when am I going to get the buzz? So I realized that I was meditating a little bit like somebody taking drugs, always looking for a high. Because I was programmed, as I think many people are, I was programmed to believe something's only working if you feel good as a result of it. And that feel-good has to be like a ramped-up excitement in the body and mind. Oh, then it's working because I felt something. So then I'm sitting down meditating. And when I first became a monk in my first year, I was quite ambitious about the whole thing. And I used to do a lot of meditation throughout the day. I was living in the monastery, and I was living this very kind of quiet life, not like now where I'm traveling all the time. And I was doing lots and lots of meditation during the day. Thinking I was kind of really into it, I was quite ambitious about it. I thought, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm in the fast track. I'm like, you know, Mr. Hardcore Monk, here I go. Just you watch me. I'm, You know, like (laughs) that kind of feeling, like ego, basically. But the meditation, the more I did, the more unhappy I felt. And because of that, wanting to feel something. So what it means is that I'm sitting down to meditate, and I'm waiting to get high, waiting to get some kind of buzz from it. So it means I'm telling myself I lack happiness. I'm coming from a place of deficiency, and I'm creating that deficiency again and again within my body and mind. So I started to get more miserable. The game changer for me was when my teachers, I've been so fortunate to study with some of these incredible Tibetan masters, so my teacher, Akon Rinpoche, told me, you must meditate on compassion. And that was the game changer, is when I started to think, oh, okay, I'm not going to do this for me to get a feeling out of it. I'm going to widen out this energy of meditation into something to do with helping people, compassion, kindness. And then it starts to change. Because compassion takes the meditation journey from a self-centered, graspy, addictive kind of reality into something that is of service to the world. And then you can let go, and you just do your best, and day after day you try to be kind to people, and your meditation is giving you the fuel and energy to do that. It just changes the whole picture from a kind of desperate search for internal happiness into a feeling that happiness is a shared experience, because the world is a shared experience. We all live together on this planet, So surely the happiness thing has to be connected to that, that interdependence, that community, the community aspect. Okay, but what is compassion? I think when we think of compassion, we have all kinds of ideas about it. But again, we tend to think of it in terms of a feeling, a sensation, maybe like feeling sad when others are suffering, feeling pain when others feel pain, That's a kind of compassion, but it's more related to empathy. And I think there's a difference between empathy and compassion. Empathy is, of course, a good thing. It's good to have empathy, but empathy can be very draining. Because what happens when you experience empathy, in terms of brain activity, it's like a mirror, mirroring occurs in the brain. What I mean by that is, you know how when you see somebody in physical pain, supposing you see somebody break their leg, you kind of feel it in your own body. That is empathy. Somebody's in pain, the areas of the brain connected to pain also start to activate. It's like a mirror. We feel what they feel. Whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, whatever it is, somebody is suffering and now I'm suffering too. It's a little bit like somebody's drowning and I jump in to save them. And now I'm drowning too. We're both drowning. So I don't know how much benefit that really has. Now two people are suffering. Really interesting thing. They've done a lot of brain scans, a lot of brain research on people who meditate. And they've shown that people who practice compassion based mindfulness have a very particular brain activity that starts to change the motor cortex in the brain starts to activate. The motor cortex is the brain region connected with intention to act. Like any action you're going to have, you have to intend it first in a very simple way. I want to cook dinner. I have to have the intention and then I go and do it. The motor cortex is the region which is all about intentions and actions. So when you're practicing compassion-based mindfulness, which I'll define in a moment, you're activating those intention areas of the brain which will lead to action. So this will lead us to do things that benefit not just ourselves and others. So our life starts to transform. We start to want to help people. We also, through our mindfulness practice, start to develop the wisdom and the skills through which we can help people. Because just wanting to help them Yeah, but then what? How? In what way? How? What do you do? So we're activating the wisdom and skills through which we can genuinely help others. So it's a situation that has benefit. So what is compassion-based mindfulness? What does it mean to practice compassion in the mindfulness? And how does that relate to happiness? How do these seemingly separate subjects weave together? Okay, so I think there are a couple of things. For me, one of the key elements is whenever I sit down to practice mindfulness, which we're going to do in a minute, by the way, we are going to get practical. This is not all theory, and we're going to do some in a moment. Whenever I sit down to practice mindfulness, even if it's five or ten minutes of, say, focused breathing or whatever technique I'm doing, I will always start and end the session by creating a moment of compassion as an intention So I'll sit and I'll remind myself, I am doing this practice for the benefit of all sentient beings, all beings. So not just humans, but animals, all beings. I am doing this for their benefit. Through this practice, may I help others. It's like an affirmation, a prayer, a wish, a commitment. There's many ways of doing this. For some people, they really resonate with prayer, so they use prayer. Some people don't. That's also fine. You can just sit there and make a kind of decision. I'm going to do this for the benefit of the world. It's just a decision, like planting a seed at the start of your session. Then I do the session. You just let go of that and do the session, say 10 minutes or Whatever of whatever technique you're practicing, any, any meditation, any mindfulness or meditation or any spiritual exercise of any kind. There's no limits to the range of exercises that are available, but the key point is why you're doing it. So you do the motivation, you do the session. And then at the end of the session, I always take a moment to re-energize that compassion by taking a moment to just recommit. I dedicate, I'm dedicating the fruits of this practice to the benefit of the world, to the benefit of others. It's just a decision. It's like the reason for practicing. Now, you are activating the motor cortex because you're making an intention. So you're training again and again in the intention to benefit others. And you're connecting that with meditation. So the whole mixture of that creates a path of compassion, which will become real we will get out there and help people in a deeper way as time goes on. Okay, that's one part. So here I'm trying to give you a kind of definition of compassion-based mindfulness. That's one part, the intention aspect, why you're doing it. The other part is going a bit deeper, is that the practice itself, practicing meditation itself, creates compassion, creates love, builds love, builds kindness. Why? Because when you meditate, there is a relationship with your thoughts. And that is the key point. That is the key point, is how you relate to your own thoughts and emotions. That's what it's all about. Because if we are relating negatively to our thoughts and emotions, we're just getting more stressed, we're just building more self-disgust, self-hatred, pressure, judgment, On the other hand, if we relate compassionately to our thoughts and emotions, then we are building an internal training in love, in kindness. So what does that mean? It means you're sitting down and meditating, and then your mind wanders. Then what happens? Self-judgment. I want to try this now. Let's just try this, just as you are sitting there. Just sit comfortably in your chair, but I just want to invite you to Not even like a big deal, oh, I'm going to meditate, it's a big deal. No, just very comfortably just sit there and try to be present and try to be in the moment and not in the past, not in the future, but in the moment. And just see how that goes and see how it is. Just try that for a few moments. Okay, maybe we need something to hold on to. So hold on to your breathing. Breathe naturally, without effort, just normal breathing. But use that as your present moment focus. Just be connected to your breathing. Not deep breathing or slow breathing, just normal, natural, gentle breathing. Let that be your present moment focus. Try that for a few moments. Okay, enough. Just a quick experiment there. Because I'm hoping you discovered how kind of difficult that is. And then this is where the compassion starts to work. Did you find that you kind of failed again and again? I mean, that's a harsh judgment to apply, but let's just go there for a moment. It kind of feels like failure, doesn't it? Because with mindfulness or meditation, I use these two terms interchangeably, you know, mindfulness, meditation. With these practices, we are focusing on our breathing, or oh, I know there are also other meditations you might be interested in, but they usually involve focus, don't they? Or visualization, or something, something you're doing. Here we were just using the breathing. Within moments, the plan fails. I mean, we had this really good intention to sit there for five minutes, breathing consciously. Within about five seconds, we start writing shopping lists. We start, like, what's for lunch? Planning revenge. I don't know. Did I feed the cats today or not? Like, do I need to write that email? I mean, the mind goes all over the place. One moment you are surfing in Hawaii, the next moment you're worrying about the cats. I mean, it's really random how the mind just goes all over the place. So in one sense, we failed. Failed, as in we had the plan to focus on our breathing. Now, please understand that what I'm saying now applies to all meditations, whatever you're doing, visualization, breathing, anything. We're trying to do this thing. We're trying to be focused on this technique. And yeah, we kind of failed in that... Within moments, our minds started thinking about other stuff, or we fell asleep, or whatever. That is where many people judge themselves. And that is where, for many people, meditation or mindfulness becomes quite harsh and quite stressful, and kind of something you don't really want to do. In fact, I think this is the prime reason why people don't meditate every day, because it's kind of a struggle, and it's harsh and difficult, but it's only because of an attitude. It's only because we feel like we failed. Actually, I think it's a really great thing to fail. I really do, because that so-called failure shows us the human condition. It shows us how the human mind is really unstable in many ways. It's very hard to get your mind to do what you want it to do. It goes and does other stuff. So this is compassion, is to realize how the mind is really difficult to tame. And we don't need to feel angry with ourselves or others about that. We can just feel, okay, this is the mind. This is what it is. This is, in fact, why we're meditating. Okay, that's one thing. But at a deeper level, the very fact that our mind got distracted is the main thing that helps us get stronger. Because when your mind gets distracted, you then have the chance to bring your attention back to your breathing. And that is the training. That is the main thing to be doing, is to be returning. So mindfulness is not about being in a kind of special feeling or trance or special experience. It's literally, at this stage anyway, like going to the gym and lifting weights. You're training in this exercise of returning to your breathing again and again. That's a really powerful thing to learn, because the more we return to our breathing, the more we are mastering our own mind, because we are learning how to not get dragged away by the thoughts, but instead coming back to the breathing gives us power and strength, so that in our daily lives we can learn to let go of stress and negativity and distraction. We can learn to choose to put our mind into a state we want it to be in. For example, to choose happiness, to choose to be positive, to choose not to be negative. We're developing that mental flexibility every time we bring our attention back to the breath. Okay, so if that's what we are trying to learn, the bringing it back, the returning, if that's the point, then you've got to have somewhere to return from. If you're meant to be learning this repeated experience of returning, Well, something needed to take you away so that you can return. So those thoughts, those distractions, are really helpful. They enabled the returning. So in fact, thinking this way helps us develop a very different relationship with our thoughts and emotions. We don't see them as a problem. We don't see them as we failed. We see them as the key element we need for success. So thinking this way helps us to feel more at peace with our own mind. Because for many people who meditate, they get really stressed because they're sitting there trying to clear their mind. I think there's a kind of cultural myth about meditation, which is that people think you're supposed to clear your mind or empty your mind or blank out your mind. That is not meditation at all. That is impossible. It's like trying to push yourself into a kind of blank state. And the more you try to push the thoughts away, the louder they shout. So meditation becomes really painful. If, on the other hand, you understand that it's an exercise of returning to the breath again and again, then you don't feel that your thoughts were a problem. They enabled that exercise. So actually, it's really helpful to remind yourself that in a meditation session, There are really just three phases within the session. The phase or the part where you are with the breath, the part where you are noticing that you got lost, and the part where you're returning. So these three phases are breathing, noticing, and returning. Breathing, noticing, and returning. So the breathing part is when we're aware that we're breathing. That's the part that most people identify as meditation, and they think that's all it is. But they maybe don't know there are two other phases that are equally important. So the second phase is noticing. That means you notice that your mind got lost. It's really interesting how that works. Because when we're doing the breathing, and we're aware of the breathing, it's not that we actually see ourselves going for a walk in our heads. We don't see our mind leave the breath and go to this thought, then that thought, then that thought. We don't see that. It's more that we almost become unconscious. and We get lost. And then a few minutes later, we kind of wake up inside our thoughts. Oh, where was I? Like that, you know? Suddenly we're, oh, I'm gone. I'm supposed to be meditating. That's phase two, noticing. You noticed that you got lost. That noticing is a powerful moment of awareness, and that's meditation. You've regained the awareness, so that's really good. And the more we can train in that, the better. So having the wandering mind enabled that noticing, that awareness. And of course, over time, we'll be able to notice more soon, more quickly. You know, we're going to get better at this, but that's the training. And then the third phase is the returning. So gently bringing our attention back to the breath. The gently part is really important. There was a neuroscientist in Germany who did a lot of research into mindfulness and she got two groups practicing mindfulness and she had two teachers and she told one teacher to teach it correctly and one teacher to teach it incorrectly. The correctly teacher was told to simply say to the students, when your mind wanders, gently bring your attention back to the breath. The incorrectly person was told miss out the word gently. Just tell the people when your mind wanders, bring it back. Then she tested their cortisol levels. The incorrect group had way more stress, because they were spending their whole session punishing themselves. Like, oh, you so naughty, bring your attention back to the breath. The correct group were told gently, compassionately, kindly, just gently come back, and it changed their stress levels. So that's an interesting aside. Okay. So we've got these three phases in a meditation session. Sometimes we're breathing. Well, we're always breathing, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes we're aware that we're breathing. The second phase is noticing that we got lost. And the third phase is returning. And a meditation session will consist of those three things happening again and again and again. And you can replace breathing with whatever your technique is, whatever visualization, anything, the technique. Yeah. So sometimes you're doing the technique with full awareness, sometimes you're noticing you got lost, sometimes you're returning. A session of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 5 minutes, however long, will consist of those three phases repeated again and again and again. And it's the practice of those three things that makes us stronger. If you understand that, then your relationship with your mind completely transforms because you stop feeling like a failure for having thoughts. You stop feeling like you got it wrong because your mind got distracted. So you don't mind. In fact, you're almost saying, bring it on because these thoughts enable me to come back. So this generates in the mind compassion, compassionate acceptance of your own thoughts and emotions. And that changes everything. You're no longer at war with yourself. Okay, I want to talk a little bit now about integrating our meditation into daily life. I call this mindful moments or micro moments of mindfulness because of course it's great to meditate every day. But what many people forget is that how to then bring that into their day. Otherwise they're meditating at home and then they're stressed at work. (laughs) You know, they're not taking their meditation to work with them or into the rest of their day. So it becomes like two people who never meet the meditator and the non-meditator. And especially people who do slightly more esoteric practices, using mantras, yoga, chakras, visualizations, it's even more of a risk with those types of practices because the practice is so divorced from ordinary life and you go into this kind of internal temple and do this great spiritual thing, but then the rest of the day there's no contact with it and you feel a bit like you're trying to hold on to something that you don't know how to bring with you. So I think it's really, really important to practice tiny, microscopic moments of awareness throughout the day, in any situation, wherever you are. And this is about letting meditation become your default state. I see it a bit like drip feeding the practice throughout the day, And this is something which can be done very simply. You don't have to make a big deal out of it. It's something very natural, very simple. Usually just using your body or visual objects or sounds or anything in the present reality. So I love to do this in airports. Maybe because airports are my natural habitat, because I travel a lot. So I'm often in an airport. And an airport is a strange situation because it's like being in a vacuum. There's nothing you can do. You are there. You have to stand in line. You have to be herded from one place to another. There's all these rules. I mean, you can't just do what you want. It's a very unnatural situation. But I love using mindful moments in those situations because I feel like I'm rewiring my system in a creative way. For example, I'm standing in line at security or at check-in or whatever. And everyone's checking their phone or feeling frustrated or the line is too long. I mean, there's a whole thing around stress that comes up. Whereas what I will do is I will try and practice little moments of awareness by feeling the ground under my feet or being aware of my shoulders or picking out visually a spot on the floor and just looking at it. I just use little moments of awareness like that as I'm standing in line Or sitting on a plane or in a waiting room in an airport or wherever, feeling the chair under my body. Or if I'm working in an office, I would feel the chair under my body maybe 10, 15, 20 times a day for a few moments each time. Literally just a few seconds. It's really hard to remember to do this because we get so carried away by the stress of life and the busyness of life. But what makes it easier is if you choose to deliberately do this with specific actions. For example, brushing your teeth mindfully, or washing your hands mindfully. These are two very specific actions, or eating, You know things you can do very specifically in a mindful way every day. For example, washing your hands. Normally, we're washing our hands distractedly, aren't we? Our hands are moving, but our mind is also moving. <laughs> our hands are moving around, and our mind is all over the place. So mindful hand-washing means to simply be fully present with the sensations of the movement of the hands, the soap, the water, the movement. It doesn't mean that you are physically doing anything different. You're not slowing down or anything. You're just washing your hands, but you're fully present with that moment. Brushing your teeth, the toothbrush, the mouth, the taste, the sensation of the toothpaste, the whole thing. You're just feeling the moment for a few seconds. Anybody who has to do anything in public, public speaking, giving a presentation at work, being on stage like this, if you do it in those moments, it revolutionizes the whole situation. I used to be terrified of speaking in public. The first time I had to speak in public, I was so frightened I started to cry. I used to be an actor, but that's very different. When you're an actor, you have no fear because you're not being yourself. You're being somebody else. That's really easy. Because you are not you. You are completely protected by the situation you're in. But when I had to be me, speaking as me in front of people, I was absolutely terrified. Now, because I've made a habit of going into a mindful state while I'm on stage, I find it incredibly relaxing. For me, it's like having a free massage. (laughs) Because the more the talk goes on, the more relaxed I become because I'm going into that mindfulness moment to moment. Like right now, I'm feeling the chair under my body and the ground under my feet, and it's bringing down any cortisol. So it's making me more present, more aware, more focused. It means I don't have to prepare my talk because if you go into a calm state, what is in you already will just come out. So it revolutionizes any kind of public speaking. But also any situation, being at work, being at home with the kids, whatever you're doing. Also enjoyable things. I mean, so many people are on holiday lying on a sun lounger by a pool, but they're checking their phone or worrying about what's at home. They're not really there. And I think as a culture, we've really moved away from the present moment and we've become so absent. So plugging into that moment-to-moment mindfulness throughout the day brings joy It brings real joy to your life because you're fully there. And what's so precious is when you can learn to do that when you are uncomfortable. Because otherwise we think of joy and happiness as just feeling good. But I like to do this when I'm in discomfort. If I'm physically unwell, I find it very powerful to go into a mindful moment with the sensation of discomfort in my body. I'll relax into, or I will lean into, or dissolve into, I'm finding different phrases here to describe it, sinking into, relaxing into, meeting it with awareness. Say it's a headache or a backache or whatever. Sure, seek medical treatment. I'm not suggesting throw away your medicines. I'm just saying when you have discomfort that you can't get any help with, you can learn to accept it physically and emotionally and be with that moment calmly. What it does is it teaches you that happiness is a trainable skill. Happiness is a trainable skill. You are learning to be with the moment without pushing it away. Happiness is not a buzz, a feel-good, a high. It's about being with the moment with love, love and acceptance. So when you can start to do this with discomfort, it's incredibly transformative. So maybe in my story around public speaking, that's what has happened, in that I used to feel terrified to be on stage. That's discomfort. I hated it, but then I learned to be mindful in those moments, and it's now transformed into something pleasurable and relaxing. I like to do this when I'm standing in a queue, or stuck in traffic, or in any situation where I feel I'm waiting, or stuck, or late for something, because then you're meeting your edge. You're in that kind of discomfort zone, but you go into the mindfulness just feeling the moment, feeling the car seat under your body as you're stuck in traffic, feeling the ground under your feet, whatever it is. Using physical feeling or sensation is a very easy way to do it, or you can use the sound that you hear, the sound of the train or the traffic or a visual object, anything really with your senses, Because what you're doing is rewiring yourself, reprogramming yourself, to instead of going into stress and impatience, you're going into the moment and being okay with it. So I think doing that, whether you are in discomfort or not, just generally many times a day, brings the mindfulness into your day, so that it's not something separate from your life, it's something that is with you many times a day. Then it becomes your more like your default state. And then you start to discover that happiness is actually within you. It's available within you in terms of meeting the moment with acceptance and not pushing it away. So you start to feel as if it's in your wiring. I like to talk about how we are hardwired for happiness. It is within our wiring. We think it's outside, but it's inside. And these mindful moments help us to connect with what is there already within us. So maybe time for some questions.
2: Hi, my name is Maite. When you were talking about focusing your eyes down and semi-open, for me it's very difficult to do that. I can do it for a few seconds, but I feel like I have to close my eyes.
0: Sure.
2: It's okay just closing the eyes.
0: It's okay. I just think that if you train yourself to eventually leave your eyes open, it promotes greater awareness. Let me explain this a bit more. I totally appreciate your question. It is at first difficult, Like you want to close your eyes, you're feeling, how am I doing this? I don't know how to keep them open. But actually, it's without effort. Our eyes are open all the time without effort. Like right now, you're not holding your eyes open with effort, they're just open. To me, it's a little bit like when you're on a train, and you're looking out the window, but you're not seeing what's outside. Your eyes are open, but switched off. The trees move by, the traffic, you're just not really looking at it. I live in London. In London, we have the metro, the subway system. Like in New York as well, you're sitting opposite each other. You're kind of like looking not at the person in front of you, but just like switched off. You're staring in front of you, but not even seeing their face. It's a little bit like that in meditation. Your eyes are open, but switched off. Angling the gaze down helps at first, because you can just not be too distracted. The reason for it is that it promotes awareness. Closing your eyes will make you more sleepy. And even if it doesn't make you sleepy, it tends to make you go into a kind of dullness. Do you know what I mean? Like slightly, like fog, like mist, not so much clarity. Because when you close your eyes, you tend to go into a kind of slightly subdued sleepy mode. Whereas having the eyes open is total awareness. You're really here. Mindfulness means to be in the present moment without judgment, without changing it, just to be there with total acceptance. Now, if you close your eyes, you are kind of judging the present moment. You're saying to yourself, here I am in this room, but actually the things around me are a problem for the mindfulness. I'm going to close my eyes to make it easier. So that's a huge judgment from step one. So to just leave your eyes open means that you're in a total present moment without changing it. The other reason why having the eyes open is so powerful is because it will become easier to then bring your mindfulness into daily life. If you practice mindfulness with the eyes closed, you start to associate the meditative state with darkness. So you become very dependent on darkness to be in that state. If you practice every day with your eyes open, you can generally find it easier to let the meditation appear throughout your day, mindful moments, because you're learning to meditate in the present moment. So I appreciate that at first it's a little bit difficult, but in the long run it's a really powerful shift to just be present without shutting anything down. It makes the meditation stronger, more present, more vibrant.
2: I completely agree with all of that. I've been meditating and I have a tendency to close my eyes.
0: Yeah. It's not um, a bad thing. It's not no, bad. It's just here's another suggestion.
2: And it makes sense, like, to be able to bring it to the reality with the eyes a little open. Yeah. But I also found myself judging when I was trying to keep my eyes open. Yeah. That normally I feel more comfortable having them sure. closed. So I have to allow myself to go there in yeah. order not to feel judged. judged. Sure. And then I guess
0: it's just like working. It's a process. Mm -hmm. It's a process. Otherwise you get into a whole trip about Mm -hmm. that. I'm so bad. I'm doing it wrong. No, no. Just do it how you do it, but slowly let it evolve.
3: Thank Mm -hmm. you. Any more questions? My name is Jared. Hi. Thank you. So I've had a daily transcendental meditation practice for a number of years. Very similar in terms of thoughts come in, gently just refocus as far as mantra-based. So that piece... I've become somewhat accustomed to without judgment. The focus on the body and different sensations throughout the body is very difficult for me. How? Difficult how? In terms of recognizing a feeling. So feel your feet on the ground. What does that feel like?
0: Ah, are you adding a lot of ideas? Like, does it feel like this? Does it feel like that? Are you getting into a lot of concepts? Is that what you mean? Or you, can you not feel anything? Is that I
3: don't recognize you can't feeling connect. very much. I sure. can't connect. Sure. So then judgment will come in. Oh, I'm doing this wrong. In terms yeah. of, well, not so much I'm doing it wrong, but I don't have the ability to connect. I can't okay. connect. I don't have the sensation. And I'm curious just with the TM, I have been doing it for a long time, but I can do it very easily without judgment. Even okay. if the mind is very hectic at times, there's acceptance to that. But the body recognition piece, which I do understand is a big part of mindfulness, I just struggle with. So I'm curious how you...
0: Well, thank you for your question. And I think it's not about having to feel anything. It's about being aware of feeling or lack of feeling. In fact, there's an exercise called the body scan, which is a very common well-known mindfulness exercise where you're usually lying down or sitting in a chair and you're scanning from the toes up to the head and down again through the different parts of the body and there are definitely parts where you may feel something like you might have aching shoulders or tense legs but there are parts where you won't feel anything like why would you feel something in your left small finger or in your right elbow so it's actually about scanning through the body and just registering presence or absence of feeling, and leaving it at that. You don't have to feel anything. You're simply paying attention to sensation or lack of sensation. So maybe your question is based on looking for a sensation and not finding one, and then
3: thinking, oh, where is it? Does that resonate for you? Yes, but yeah. I also think it's twofold. It's the questioning of why don't I have the sensation, or how do I get the sensation, or...
0: Yes, yes. And I think just let go of that and think, well, I don't need to have a sensation. I don't need anything. I'm just being aware. Awareness is nonjudgmental. Like a scanner, like an MRI machine. It's only the person reading the medical report who judges. The actual scanner just photographs whether there's sickness or no sickness in an MRI machine. So similarly with body awareness, you're just registering the body at that place, feeling or no
3: feeling. And then can you talk at all about just the distinction between a mindfulness-based practice and other forms like Transcendental Meditation? Sure.
0: And in fact, I'm a Tibetan Buddhist monk, and in Tibetan Buddhism, we use mantra. Most of my practices are mantra-based. But actually, in terms of the technology of it or the technique, it is doing the same thing. Whether you're focusing on your breathing or a mantra or a visualization, you're doing the same thing, actually. You're being present. You're using something to anchor yourself and your mind will definitely lose focus and you're bringing it gently back to that focus. Breath, mantra, whatever. It's actually the same thing. Sure, maybe some people like to use mantra because it's richer, deeper, there's a more spiritual energy than just the breath. In Buddhism, we actually have whole categories of this. It's called using an object, using no object. Within the category of using an object, there are mundane objects and spiritual objects. Mundane objects are the breath, spiritual objects are mantras. So it's all categorized in the teachings, but whatever you're doing, it's focus on the moment. And I think it's just that different people gravitate towards things that suit them. Some people like mantras, some people prefer breath. Thank, Thank you. you. Hi. Hello,
4: my name is Anna. I wanted to ask you a question about when you come back yeah. from... Distraction, your meditation yeah. State. Sometimes there have been a couple of times where I have a very hard time coming back.
0: Do you mean coming back? At,
4: to reality. Like oh, questions. ending your session. Ending the session. Ah. So about the timing, because like when you have a timer, yeah. you have like 10 minutes mm. and then it takes you 10 minutes to kind of. Okay. So of course it's not time, but sometimes, for example, when it's guided. Yeah.
0: Like,
4: or you're in a yoga session and then it's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The timing or the process yeah. in which that happens for me sometimes makes I, me anxious on, I really need more time too.
0: Are you meditating with your eyes closed or open?
4: Sometimes closed, yeah. sometimes open. I can,
0: you see why that would make a difference? Yes. What technique are you generally using? I'm asking you these questions because it will maybe help me I think that answer. probably
4: the times that that has been longer is maybe when you're focusing on your third eye.
0: On the third eye, do you feel that you are getting lost in the meditation and then it's very hard to come back to reality? So maybe to combat that problem, do something much more simple, such as breathing, because it's more connected with ordinary life. What I love about meditation is that it's completely normal. It's completely ordinary. It's just you and your breath. So going into chakras and internal energy... Can be more like you'll go into another space and it's very hard to come back. I prefer breathing because it's so normal and I can take it with me wherever I go. Literally. Okay, thank you. Hi. <laughs> Hi.
2: I've been struggling with the concept of meditation since I was seven.
0: Seven? Yeah. Okay. I
2: started with TM with my family. Yeah. Because I understand that it's about pieces every step. And that it is mindfulness is bringing it into everyday actions and everyday... So the idea of taking yourself away into a state of focus feels more and more, as time goes by, controlling or false. Mm -hmm. And so this setup of sense of failure is almost implicit, Mm -hmm. even if I'm not judging and I'm Mm -hmm. doing the whole mind thing of un... Judging, And it has become a real confusion to us. I've stopped meditating, I do the whole mindful thing wherever I am, Mm -hmm. ease into it. And I'm just wondering, because I'm teaching children to run with the flow of their mind, to run with their thoughts, and to create so we don't control and become robotic. Mm -hmm. So there's a real conflict in me about when I listen to monks and great teachers like Tichnathan Han and yourself, I'm thinking, yeah, that sounds great. At the same time, I'm thinking, how are we going to do this? I mean, what is really the good in reining the mind back in if we know it's going to rain back out?
0: Oh, simply because we are learning to exercise choice. Normally, without meditation, we are at the mercy of our own minds. And this is why we suffer. Sure, the mind can do beautiful stuff. Imagination, running free, thinking up great ideas, that's great. But the mind often doesn't do that. The mind often gets caught up in anxiety, worry, sadness, judgment. The mind runs away. And so through meditation, we're not controlling that, but we are learning to choose. So I don't see it as reining the mind in or controlling the mind. I see it as choosing the breath over the thought. Only during the 10 minutes, though. Just like if you go to the gym, nobody said do sit-ups all day, but you do some sit-ups in the morning, then you have your stomach muscles. It's the same with meditation, is that it's a training that will help you. But maybe the issue comes from expectation, from expecting it to feel a certain way. I do find that sometimes people who practice mantra-based practice can be a little bit pushing themselves I also practice vipassana and
2: many, many types of meditation. Again,
0: in vipassana also that can happen, which is almost like searching for it to work. So I would wonder if you could, just a suggestion, just rewind all of that and do the breathing and feel that it's something very natural. There's nothing more natural than to breathe with awareness. Don't add anything, just breathe with awareness. The talks I give, the practices I present... Are really boring. <laughs> There's no glamour to it. There's no bells and whistles. It's incredibly boring, but that's so transformative. Again. Does that
3: make sense? Of course. Thank so. you. Anything else? Thank you for being here and thank you for teaching us. Thank you. So for my question, every time I meditate, I get this really uncomfortable feeling of stress. Yeah. And actually, even when you guided us through it, I had to go outside, I had to do okay. like push-ups and jumping sure, jacks sure. to get back to feeling myself. Like, I've had a practice in the past where I would meditate every day, and still this uncomfortable feeling of stress, you know, goes out through my entire body. Do you know why that would be the case? And I've seen
0: people run out of sessions
3: a lot. I've seen people run out of temples,
0: slamming the door. It's quite normal, actually. I've often wanted to do that. <laughs> not now, now it's different, but in the early days when I started meditating, I did feel I just wanted to run screaming into the hills. The stress comes up, like a feeling of, I've got to run outside, I've got to do something else. What changed it for me was when I learned how to use that as the meditation. You don't need to see that as a problem, you just say, oh, this is what's happening now, so let me use this. And then feel all that stress in your body and just feel it with full attention, and just let it be completely. It's like being with a friend. I'm gonna be with this like a friend. And just being with that sensation without judging it, without saying it's wrong, changes it. So try that.
3: We'll try that. So my next question is, you just talked about how be mindful no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Whether you're washing your hands, or public speaking, or... If you are being mindful in all these other times Mm. of the day and you Mm. have a long period of presence, is there a real necessary point of the 10 minutes of the morning? Right. Because if you're getting an hour later in the day, does the 10 minutes in the morning really
0: make a difference? It's like two wings of a bird. We need both. The formal meditation and the informal meditation. The informal meditation really brings that mindfulness into daily life many, many times a day. It integrates the meditation throughout the day. But it's the formal meditation that changes our relationship with our thoughts. Because the mindful moments are really easy to do. I mean, remembering to do them is another story. But to do them, you're just dropping into that awareness throughout the day. It's in the 10 minutes that the mind starts doing all its stuff, going everywhere, and you can bring it back, and that's how we start to change the relationship, so it's a deeper training. I think we do need both. Like a bird has two wings, if it has one wing, it would fly around in circles. Yeah, we wouldn't want that. Thank you so much for Thank this. You. For you. Thank you. Who's next? Hi. Hi.
4: Hello. Thank you for this. Thank you. This is regarding my niece, actually, okay. who's for eight months has had severe anxiety. And she hasn't been able to like go to school or leave the house or even see her parents. Yeah. And then she has been to hospital and they've made like a program of her to come out of this, but that doesn't contain mindfulness. And I know that you probably can't put that upon someone, Mm. but I believe it would be super helpful for her. And she's just turned 13. So Mm. my question is how to introduce someone
0: Mm.
4: like who already suffers from anxiety Mm. to Mm mindfulness
0: well that's what my mother did for me is she didn't force me but she left it lying around in those days there was no internet so she left books lying around but i mean the whole point of mind valley is that there are so many online tools within mind valley and of course other organizations too to make that available to her using the apps and using little videos and stuff and just show her stuff and say do you want to watch this and see if she gets inspired but you have to do it, I think, in a really non-forceful way. Because sometimes when our parents, you know, they tell us, then we immediately go the other way. So I think it has to be done quite skillfully. But just make it available and embody it yourself. If you embody mindfulness, that can help
1: her to be calm. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So folks, this is Vishen, back again. We're about to go into the meditation portion of this podcast episode. And I want to just remind you, do not listen to this if you are driving a vehicle. Please pull over to the side or save this portion for when you get home. And if you'd like a recording of this particular meditation by Gelong Tugten, it is available on Mind Valley's Ombana app on the iTunes Store. Just search for Ombana, O M V A N A, and you'll find it under Gailong Tugton. So
0: this time we're going to really try to just practice those three phases, breathing with awareness, getting lost and then noticing and then coming back. But I want to encourage you to have a little bit more alertness. I think sometimes when people meditate, they tend to kind of zone out and lean back and they shut their eyes and they're kind of just like drifting away and that like, dribble coming out of the corner of the mouth. <laughs> I think it's really good to be sitting up straight and having that real focus and presence, and that's much more dynamic. So basically, sit up straight, but comfortable. don't be you know uncomfortable. Make yourself comfortable by having a cushion behind the base of your spine. For now in these chairs, don't worry, but later on, you can sit up straight, but have lower back support, like a cushion just behind the base of your spine for now don't worry your feet are flat on the ground or if you're on a low chair like me you can just cross your ankles over your hands are palms down on the tops of your legs or on the tops of your knees however long or short your arms are your shoulders are open everything is open you're not hunched forward you're really open this is a sense of total presence and courage and openness rather than shutting down or kind of sinking within you're really here Your head is upright, not leaning forward, not leaning back, but just upright. You can, in fact, slightly lengthen the back of your neck. Just basically good posture, but relaxed. Don't be held rigidly. You're kind of disciplined and at the same time very loose. It's a curious mixture there, disciplined and loose. Now, have your eyes just gently open, so they're not closed and they're not fully open. You're not looking around the room and you're not even looking at anything, but your eyes are just left alone, gently, softly open, but looking at an angle downwards in front of you. So you're looking into space, but not at the back of the person in front of you or at a spot on the carpet. You're just looking into space, angled downwards slightly, and blink whenever you need to, and of course close your eyes from time to time if you want to. So just be focused in that posture. We're going to do like six or seven steps. Step one is to be in the good posture. Step two is establish compassion, which means to make a very deep, intention or wish or even prayer deep in your heart. May I meditate in order to develop more compassion and love for all sentient beings. May this benefit all beings. Okay. Step three. Feel your body. By feeling the surroundings, as in the chair and the floor under your feet, feel the contact between your body and your surroundings. Feel the chair under your body. Feel it under your backside, feel it behind the base of your spine. Notice the contact between your body and the chair. The noticing is very fresh, very uncomplicated. You're just sensing without thinking about it too much. Bring the attention up to your hands, and feel how your hands feel resting on your legs. Notice the feeling of the fabric of your clothing under the skin of your hands. Connect with the sense of touch. Now bring the attention up to your shoulders, maybe your shoulders feel tense, maybe they don't, it's okay either way. Simply be present and feel what you feel or don't feel, but with full awareness. Okay, bring the attention down to the front of your body. Your belly, your abdomen. And now the next stage is to notice how your breathing makes your body move. Breathe naturally without effort. But feel how your breath makes your chest or your belly rise and fall, rhythmically. There's a movement in and out. Just feel that rhythm. When your mind wanders, gently bring it back to that feeling of movement. Now bring your attention up to your face. Feel the air traveling in and out of your nose. The air is very natural, you're not pushing it or making it deep, it's just left alone. But feel how it travels up and down your nostrils. If that is not comfortable, then breathe through your mouth and feel the air against your lips. So either in the nose or in the mouth, there's a movement of air brushing across skin as it comes in and out. Just connect with that. And when you lose connection, regain connection again and again. We'll try that for three minutes. Remember to gently notice and return. Don't fight your thoughts. Just see them as the reason why you can notice and return. Do another minute. Okay, now to conclude the exercise, focus again on your body. Feel the weight of your body on the chair. Notice your hands and fingers. Feel how your hands feel resting against your legs. Feel your feet. Either in your shoes or maybe not wearing shoes, doesn't matter either way. Just feel how your feet feel with your shoes and the floor. Feel the ground under your feet. And the last step is a reminder of compassion, take a moment to mentally dedicate your practice to the benefit of all beings. Make a wish, or an intention, or a prayer. Through doing these practices, may I help others. May my compassion grow. May I bring peace, happiness, and love to the world around me. Okay. So, stop there. You may have discovered a few things in that session. You may have discovered it a little bit easier because we've been talking about this more compassionate attitude that your wandering mind isn't your enemy, it isn't a failure, it's simply part of the process. You may have found that. You may not. It's not like a instant thing, but just trying to work on that attitude can be very helpful. You may also have found that you fell asleep or wanted to fall asleep. And that's really common. It's really common when people are either new to meditation or they do meditate, but not every single day it's not like a natural thing for you. It's something you're doing occasionally or you're very new to it. Then it's really common to feel incredibly sleepy simply because our body is not used to sitting there doing nothing. Normally, if we sit still, we're watching TV, we're on our phone, we're always doing something. So to sit there and just not do, just be, is a new experience. And our body isn't quite sure what to do with that our body associates stillness with sleep. So just like when you leave a laptop alone for too long, it has sleep mode. (laughs) It's not busy, so it grabs 40 winks. (laughs) It's the same with our body. But if you meditate regularly, after a while, that sleepiness starts to lift and you start to feel more present, more focused and all of that. So the answer is just keep going and that sleepiness starts to wear off. So you may have noticed the session was a bit easier because of this new attitude around compassion. You may have found the session made you sleepy. You may have also found that you're now sitting thinking, did it work, did it not work, did I feel something, did I do it right? These are all just judgments. It's not about getting an instant result or feeling different. It's just about doing it. So try to just let go of those judgments and just do the practice regularly. But I find that breaking it down into segments is really, really helpful. When I first learned meditation, I was in the monastery, they literally just sat me down and said, don't move for two hours. I mean, I really nearly went crazy. I didn't know what to do. There was a carpet we were sitting on, and I was just holding on to the pattern on the carpet so I wouldn't go nuts. And then slowly they started to teach me the methods, and what I found really helpful is to have a structure. So what we did then was seven stages. Believe it or not, there were seven very clear, distinct steps in that session. Step one was we sat in a good posture. Step two was we established compassion. The why. Why am I meditating? The first four steps are quite quick, just a few moments on each. Step one was sitting in a good posture. Step two was establish compassion. Step three was focus on the body. Just to get into the situation of sitting. We felt the chair under us. We felt the ground under our feet. You know, we were with the body. Body focus is step three. Step four is notice how the breath moves the body. Notice how the breath moves the body. Remember there we were feeling the chest or the belly, just gently undulating like a wave in and out. No big deal, not deep breathing, not pushing, just letting it be, but noticing it. That's step four, noticing how the breath moves the body. Step five is the main step. We spent longest on step five. Step five was feeling the air in our nose. Because what we're doing is we're honing the focus. We're starting very general, body, movement, and then we're really zoning in on this precise sensation of flow of the air in the nostrils. So if your nose is blocked, then of course, breathe through the mouth and feel the air against your lips. So either the nose or the lips, and that's step five, which we spent the main part of the session on, feeling the air in the nose or the mouth. And of course, your mind goes all over the place, but you keep just bringing it back. When we're ready to end the session, we kind of warm down. It's a bit like warm up, main exercise, and warm down. So warming down is step six, which is focusing on the body again for a few moments. And step seven, which was compassion, making that compassionate dedication, I'm meditating for all beings. So to recap, step one is posture. Step two is compassion. Step three is body awareness. Step four is the movement of the body. Step five is breathing in the nose or the mouth. Step six is body awareness, and step seven is compassion. So having that structure is really helpful, and having a sense of kind of discipline around time really helps. It doesn't really help if you just sit there and see how it goes. It's more helpful to decide, I will do 10 minutes, and then you time it. You have a clock, or an alarm, but a gentle alarm. Not a stressy alarm, but, you know, a little ping sound. You can get an app or something on your phone that does that. Or I don't use an alarm. I have my watch next to me and I occasionally look over, so I have a sense of what the 10 minutes is. Because that gives you discipline. Otherwise, you're going to do, like, two minutes and think, yeah, this is boring, I'm going to make coffee. (laughs) So you want to have a little bit of sense of, I will do 10 minutes no matter what. And that's
1: very helpful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. The video version of this talk is available on Mind Valley YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for Mind Valley Talks. And if you enjoyed this type of lesson, consider joining us for Mind Valley University in Amsterdam. It is happening for three weeks in July, 2020. You can come for a few days or come for all three weeks. There are classes for people as young as three and however old you may be. It is three weeks of incredible community, incredible learning, and you will meet some of the most wonderful friends you will have in your lifetime. Learn all about it on mindvalley.com forward slash you. And I'll see you next week on the Mindvalley podcast. Go to com forward slash now to get started.